brought to you by Penguin. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, where we talk to writers about writing. I'm Nihal Arthanaika, and today I'm speaking to a writer who's pretty much a British national treasure. He's the author of 19 books, including Human Traces, Charlotte Grey and Birdsong. The Independent on Sunday called his latest book, The Seventh Son, his most intriguing fictional offering yet. It is, of course, the wonderful Sebastian Falks, and I am so pleased he can join us today. Sebastian, it's lovely to see you. Very nice to see you, Nihal. Uh, thank you for writing this extraordinary book. What does this book say about the age of the author when he wrote it? Ooh, the author being me, I suppose. Indeed. Um, what does it say about my age? Um, I don't think it says anything very much about my age at all. Um, it says something about my uh, continuing interest in the world, I suppose, but I think that's something I've had since I was about five and continue to have. Did you approach your 70th with any kind of philosophical leaning, or was it just another year? I approached it with a slightly blurred vision owing to a cataract operation (laughs) and slight pain in my left knee. But apart from that, nothing, no trepidation really. It is just a number, as they say. I was also aware, I suppose, of people of my age, some of them dying, which is never a good thing. My best friend from university died earlier this year. And my American publisher died a few weeks ago, and uh, Andrew, he was a bit older than me. Uh, my uh, beloved father-in-law died. So, yeah, a bit of bit of death, but I don't really think that uh, affected my uh, writing. What does affect your writing, then, and has that changed? I think what I write about has changed, but my desire to write has remained completely constant, and partly, I suppose, because I can't do anything else. And partly because if I don't write a certain number of words in a given day, I feel unhappy and unfulfilled. And this year, for instance, 2023, I mean, I, I finished writing The Seventh Sun last year. I haven't really written anything this year. And it's making me feel very grumpy, to be honest. So the other day, I just started fiddling around and just writing the first thing that came into my head because I'm so fed up with not writing. But I suppose the content, the continuing themes that you write about, they have changed a bit. And I think when you're actually in the process of writing a book, you don't think about where it fits into your life or where it fits into your work. You just, you have something that's passionately interesting to you and you try to do your best to make it passionately interesting to the reader. But when you look back, when I have a conversation like this and you're required to be rather sort of retrospective and look back from this great height and this terrible old age, then you can see patterns in in what you've written and you can see how they've changed a bit. Why is 2023 a year where you have written so little? Because the first six months were spent on editing this book and working on it to make it the best it could be. And the second part of the year has been spent publicising it. Right, okay. So is that always the case? In, in advance of a book being released? No, it's much more intense and laborious than it used to be. Well, I used to work on a typewriter. <laughs> There'd be a great pile of pages, which I would then get typed by someone who typed rather better than I did. And then I would carry them in a Tesco's bag to the office of the publisher. And they would sort of bring the book out. There'd be sort of minimal editing and 
then there'd be a sort of interview with the Evening Standard or the Racing Post if you were lucky, and that was it. Uh, whereas I've done, I think, nine literary festivals, 16 evening events, eight podcasts, 17 interviews. Uh, I mean, I've just lost count. Um, as well as the book was edited, I received editorial notes from, I think, seven different people. So it's it's just much more intensive. Why does it require editorial notes from seven different people at this stage in your career? I mean, I interview a lot of artists, music artists at a stage of a career where it seems that the more albums they make, the less they consult other people about them. I think it's it's partly because I've changed publisher and it's partly just sort of genuine enthusiasm on the part of... So uh, my literary agents, there were three three people there had notes. I mean, very broad brush. I've changed paperback publisher from Vintage to Penguin. I'm with the same hardback publisher, Hutchinson, but all the personnel had changed during and after the pandemic. And I think just a lot of people there were very intrigued by the book and they were new to the company and they just wanted to get involved. And also I did welcome these notes, let me say. I mean, a lot of them I just ignored, but where there was a consensus, you know, you, you do well to think about it. And most of the people there are much younger than me. They're all in their 30s. You know, I'm concerned to reach younger readers, not by, you know, humiliating myself by sort of the equivalent, literary equivalent of dad dancing, but, you know, trying to write something which is interesting to all ages. How do you retain that humility in terms of your creativity when you're so well lauded and so experienced? I think that you feel that it's partly just this sort of imposter syndrome, really. You don't really know what you're doing. Um, and you never really think, I know what I'm doing. And the way in which you do it changes all the time. And every time you sit down to write, the train pulled into the station, the man got off the train and he carried his heavy bags and he got into the car and you think, well, no one's going to believe this. Uh, There wasn't a train, there isn't a man, there weren't any bags, there wasn't a car. You know, no one's going to believe this. This is just a pile of lies and I'm a liar. How am I possibly going to convince people of this? So every time is this sort of new challenge and you do feel fragile and lacking in confidence. In fact, I think in my earlier books, like The Girl at the Lyon Door, Birdsong to some extent, Charlotte Grey, there's a lot of descriptive detail, especially early on, No one goes into a room before that room has been furnished in quite minute detail and shared with the reader. And that's partly to convince the reader that such a place really did exist. It's a novel. We know it's a novel, but trying to tell you it was really there. But it's also partly to convince you yourself, the author, that it's credible, it's real, it's full, you know, has parquet flooring and heavy velvet curtains or, or whatever it might be. So I think that feeling shouldn't go away, really. And, okay, the books have done well and they they constitute a kind of shelf full now. And uh, I would like to think that, taken all in all, it's been a worthwhile enterprise. But probably none of them is as good as it ought to be. But they all have good bits in. And I just like to think of them as a sort of of an entity, really. I mean, not everyone likes them. I mean, people are very rude sometimes. And so it's never a done deal. How do you avoid disappearing down a detail-orientated rabbit hole? By, I think that is a bit of experience, actually. I worked as a journalist for quite a long time on newspapers. And when you go to write as a journalist about a sort of fairly complicated topic, what you really want to do is drill down and get rid of all the preconceived ideas and all the misreporting that's gone before you and get to the absolute nub of it. 
But then if you spend a week or so researching something, or in the case of if you're a political or war reporter, several years, the urge is to share everything you've discovered and cut out the rubbish, sure, but really share all the interesting and all the important and all the true and verifiable facts about it. And I think sometimes when I've been researching novels or sometimes when I read novels which are heavily researched, the journalistic impulse has rather dominated the novelistic impulse. And while it's true that you need to know all this, you don't need to share it all. You just need to know it. And I think, you know, experience has taught me to cut and cut and cut. What happens to the verifiable fact machine that is a journalist when he engages in the art of lying, which is the novelist? I think you use a sort of twin track in your mind, really. And people are always fascinated by research. And the research is there just to make sure that anything you say, which happened in the past, that your character is, it could feasibly have happened to a character in your character's situation. So in Birdsong, for instance, although the main character, Stephen, is an invention, you know, very, very much not like the sort of typical First World War soldier being neither a blue-eyed officer nor a sort of pack up your troubles in your old kit bag type. At the same time, I wanted his experiences of day-to-day living, what it felt like, what they ate, where they slept, how frightened they were, what it felt like to be wounded. I wanted them to be feasible, partly out of respect for the people who'd actually been through these experiences. But then in The Seventh Sun is set in the near future. Obviously, that's much easier to research because there's nothing there to research. You have a completely free hand to make it up. And the book is not at all my prediction about the future. In fact, it was pointed out to me by one of these seven readers that the book starts in 2030, but it ends in 2055. And the world of 2055 is absolutely no different at all from the world we live in today. And I said, well, that's my contention. That's my belief that things will change actually much less than we think. But anyway, that's not what the book's about. It's not predicting our future in some boring dystopia or something. But I was persuaded, and this is an example actually of the sort of consensus of editorial thought, that I could have a bit more fun with the near future. And obviously some things will be different. So from 30 years ago to today, I think there's hardly any change in the world apart from the fact that we all carry a mobile phone. Okay, that is quite a big change. And so sort of 30 years on from now, obviously the world will be hotter. And I guess AI will have a bigger impact on our lives. So I just made a few nods to things like this. And I actually invented some slightly improved politics. It's hard to imagine that politics can carry on getting worse. So it's it's not dystopian. These little touches, they're slightly more hopeful, I hope. But as I said before, this is not what the book is about. The book is about parents and children and, above all, what a strange creature the human being is. Who came first into your mind? Was it Talisa? Was it Seth? Was it Alaric and Mary? Who came first? Or was it Lucas Pan? I think the character who came first is Seth, the child, because that was the big challenge, really. You know, people talk about how do you write about characters of the opposite sex and how do you write about someone older than you or younger than you or completely different cultural background and so on. And these are valid questions and they all pose difficulties. But how do you actually write about a human who is not human at all in the same way as you and me? Well, he is, but in very different proportions. I think something like 3.5% Neanderthal. 
Uh, the rest is sapiens with some other probably human ancestors we haven't yet been able to identify. But Seth is much more Neanderthal than that. You know, if you think it's difficult to write an, an old woman from another country, how difficult it is to write a child from another species. So he, he was the big challenge, and I didn't want to make him too different. And the fact is that the Neanderthal that we all have in our genomes, or almost all of us have, is not very active in our genes. It seems to be just carried and is gradually uh, vanishing. But what we do know about Neanderthals is that they were very resourceful and very resilient, and they existed for about 300,000 years, which is about three times longer than Homo sapiens has. And we think that they had language and some sort of culture, but they lived in very difficult climates, and they didn't develop, they, well, they didn't breed nearly as much as we did, so they didn't have to develop the strategies that we had by being so densely populated which may or may not have led us to the extreme sort of cultural and intellectual achievements that we've developed. But I very much wanted Seth not to be a representative of the cliched idea of a Neanderthal being some sort of caveman dragging his knuckles on the ground. All the evidence is that Neanderthals were, you know, civilized humans, but just civilized in a different way. And I think probably my 3.5% Neanderthal represents the better part of me, really. Hmm. Why? Why were you drawn to this story about a, a Homo sapien and a Neanderthal? It happened after I'd written Human Traces, which is about the origins of psychiatry and psychoanalysis in the late 19th century, and really about the debate about whether the fact that we are so prone to mental illness and to psychosis and delusion whether this is caused by something unstable in our inheritance and whether it is indeed passed on from parent to child and stays in families, or whether it's simply a reaction to the difficult lives and rather unnatural lives we lead. So is it nature or nurture? Is it in our genes or is it in the world around us? And that debate is still going on today, really, in slightly more sophisticated terms, I suppose. Researching that, obviously, I looked a lot at where we humankind had come from. And then a few years after I finished the book, in about 2010, 2011, sometime around then, it was discovered that we weren't quite what we thought we were anyway, that we had actually, we weren't just a pure species. We'd interbred with Neanderthals, probably interbred with other human species as well. So this was a very important breakthrough, and in, it didn't really change a great deal in sort of day-to-day -day living, of course. But, you know, it made me think hard about what we are, and there was a tweet, oddly enough, it seems amazing to be taken inspiration from Twitter, which most people are now sort of leaving because it's just a sort of terrible <laughs> boxing ring of fascists and bigots shouting at each other. But Richard Dawkins, I followed, and um, he just tweeted one Friday afternoon, I think, before going off for the weekend, suppose the... I'm going to put this in non-scientific terms because I can't quite remember the scientific terms, but he was basically saying, suppose that Homo erectus, which was a long, long-distant ancestor, long before Neanderthals, suppose that they could recreate the genome of that and stick it into a, a human ovum, egg, and then this clone could be given birth to. That struck me as very, very Jurassic Park and you know far too wacky for me. But it did set me thinking along these lines again. And I thought if instead of having a clone, you had a hybrid, in other words, 50-50, uh, 
And instead of something Homo erectus about whom we know nothing, really, suppose it was a creature, a human, about whom we know quite a lot, the Neanderthal, and furthermore, one that we know we did breed with. So we must have liked them sufficiently to mate with them, at least. And they must have been sufficiently similar to us. So in that way, it became much less science fiction and much more, you know, mainstream study of, of human people. You must, because you're so relentlessly curious, Sebastian, act upon these nuggets that you see around you. How do you know when that nugget is such that it will form a book that you will then end up devoting potentially years to extrapolating from it? Well, that's the that is the big question. <laughs> How do you tell the difference between a thought and an idea? I suppose the answer is experience and it's also sort of workshopping it. This thought has come into your mind, such as I've just been describing. And then you, you try it out down the pub. And if people say, oh, that's all boring or wacko or who cares, and their <laughs> eyes glaze over straight away, you think, hmm, needs a bit of work. And then on the back of the envelope, you start mapping out characters. If Seth is going to be the main character, well, who's the surrogate going to be? What kind of person is this? And then that may play into a previous idea you've had about something or other and the kind of person you want to write about but sometimes it doesn't and sometimes you realize that in order to make this thought into an idea and in order to make that idea into a book you're going to have to have 15 major characters and at that point you think well that's unmanageable I mean and no one's going to be able to follow that and I'm not going to be able to manage that so sadly you have to abandon it so it's it's trying it out and thinking about it and turning it over in your mind chatting to people about it speaking to your agent, your editor, your friends, the guy in the pub, and, and then sitting down hard with a piece of paper. Is there a point at which in every novel you try to give up? You think this isn't going to be good, it's not going to get any better. You've talked about imposter syndrome already, but a number of authors I speak to, there's some that they'll say, at 40,000 words, I think, I always think this is rubbish, and it's never going to get any better, and I have no way of making it better. Do you have such a issue? No, I try to make sure that doesn't happen. That, that, so I do quite a lot of work before. I mean, I've ditched things after about 10,000. Right. And that's not the end of the world. That's, you know, that's no. a, a couple, three weeks or something. But I avoid that by, you know, doing a lot of workshopping, not literally, but in, in my mind, talking it through, making maps and diagrams and so on. So thank goodness, touching wood with both hands as we speak. That hasn't happened to me yet. <laughs> Um, and there are strategies for avoiding it, but it must be heartbreaking when it does. And certainly there are times when I think, oh God, that wasn't very good, that page, or you have bad days for sure. And then something better comes along and then you go back to the bad day and you think, well, what I was trying to say there was this, but actually I've already said that, so let's just cut it. Um, because this year has been taken up by editing and now publicising The Seventh Son, mm -hmm. Have you set yourself a date for which you shall then start to write again and we get the happy Sebastian Falks back again? Everyone gets happy Sebastian back in their lives. Well, 2024 is going to be happy Sebastian from uh, start to finish, I hope. In theory, yes. I mean, I would start in January, but unfortunately, it's not really predictable. What I hope is that because I've done such sort of mechanical and sort of physical work this year, not completely uncreative, that all that stuff has left the creative side of my brain 
sort of resting and that you hope to mix your metaphors a bit that there's a bit of compost happening and a bit of growth and stuff coming along there and maybe on boxing day suddenly i will spring from my bed with a, a beautiful new book fully formed in my mind but it doesn't tend to happen quite like that but i'm sort of opening up that part of my head the creative part which has been shut down for a year and sort of having a little look inside and seeing what's there and it's all a bit murky at the moment, but that's the way of it. And then suddenly something will emerge. I do feel confident that something will emerge. I am assuming, because it's such a niche reference, that you have eaten a Sri Lankan garlic curry before, made entirely of garlic cloves. Yes, I have, in uh, Gaul. Very nice it was too, actually. A place called The Sun House, owned by a rather eccentric Englishman. The food is absolutely sensational. I cook the cashew nut curry that he introduced me to myself from a, a cookbook I bought by a woman called Emily Dobbs, who's his niece. There's a nice plug for you. It's called, I think it's called the Welligama cookbook or something like that. Yes. I absolutely love Sri Lankan food. Brilliant. Well, I'm, I'm going to the Ghoul Literary Fest in January. So See you there. Yeah, really? You're going to be there? Yes. Brilliant. Yeah. We will have a, a, a cashew nut curry, also one of my favourites, it has to be said, with the richness of the coconut milk and the peas in it. Yeah. The Seventh Sun is just superb, and it's an utter page-turner for me, Sebastian. Can you just tell us about Lucas Pan? Yes, the sort of uh, sleight of hand, as I refer to it, that takes place in the IVF clinic is uh, set in motion, really, by this guy, Lucas Pan, who's a tech billionaire. So this innocent, rather pleasant couple in their 30s, rather unassuming Londoners, go to have IVF treatment because she's not able to have a child. And what they don't understand is that the male donation, as it were, is switched out and substituted by something else because although this is a, a highly respectable institute and it's the program is run in, con in concert with the National Health Service, the guy who owns it, the big money man behind it, is very ambitious and wants to experiment basically in the nature of, of humanity for ostensibly good medical reasons to do with defining exactly what homo sapiens is compared to other human species and how this might help us to find cures for chronic illnesses which beset us. But Pan himself has is, is made his money out of wave power and biotech. I don't really know what any of these things are, but the sound, it's uh, techy enough. But I didn't want him to be too much of an Elon Musk figure so I don't have him talking in very techie jargon. And he's not American, he's Australian. And he actually um, talks a bit like an outback shape shearer, which surprises people to start with as he tries to disarm them a little bit. But once he's feeling comfortable with someone, his accent settles down into a sort of bland, um, slightly East European, middle of nowhere voice, really. And what interested me about him was this assumption you have among very, very rich people, and not just tech people, incidentally, but people I'd become familiar with by writing about the financial crash, bankers and hedge funders, is that at a certain level of wealth, you think normal life doesn't apply to you. So you have this great saying, income tax is voluntary, which was popular among the people who caused the financial crash. Or I think it was Mrs. Trump who said income taxes are for the little people. And when they go to a restaurant, they don't look at the menu. They just tell the waiter what they want. And if the waiter says, we don't have that, they give him two £50 notes and say, well, go and get it. All of which is slightly irritating. But where it becomes serious is when they think that ethics or medical ethics or morality don't apply to them either. 
And so that's the area that Lucas Pan is in. He thinks that his wealth has removed him from all responsibility to other people. And this is quite a common phenomenon. And you see it in some of these billionaires in California who they think that death is for the little people, that they're not going to die. To which my response is fine. I mean, if you can, if you really want to live forever, jolly good luck to you. But personally, if someone was going to live forever, I would rather it was Victoria Wood or Barry Cryer or Jane Austen or someone who actually contributed something worthwhile to human life and not a boring little man in a track pants in Cupertino. That's what I'm thinking of. <laughs> it's really interesting you talk about this super wealthy or ultra high net worth individuals, I think as they're called. No, that's just very rich. We don't have to condescend to use that horrible term. No. Rich bastards. Yeah. <laughs> What is your feeling towards people? I mean, you made it fairly clear, actually, just a few moments ago, but towards people who have accrued that amount of wealth. Is there any sympathy for them because how isolating it is? Is there envy for them? Is there a loathing of them? Or are you fascinated by them? I don't think about them a lot, but I mean, I was certainly loathed a lot of people involved in the financial crash who acted either illegally or certainly unethically and immorally and who were bailed out by their buddies in the government. And so you have the extraordinary phenomenon of a bank being fined hundreds of millions for fraud on a deal in which they made billions. So they paid the hundreds of millions for fraud as a sort of, you know, like a 10% service charge, really. But they kept the billions from the counterparty whom they had bankrupted. So how do you get your billions out of a bankrupt counterparty? Well, in America, they were paid out of tax revenues. So the guy who pumped gas and the woman at the supermarket checkout who had paid all their tax, all that tax didn't go into hospitals and roads. It went back into the back pockets of fraudsters who'd been convicted of fraud. If that doesn't make you angry, you have no anger in you. I, I don't mind people making lots of money as long as they do it honestly and as long as they pay tax. And I find it quite odd when billionaires, um, I think we all know the kind of people we're talking about, start out big charitable foundations and cure diseases and all that but you know that they are paying only 1% tax. And I would rather that they paid the tax and allowed the government to decide how to spend that money. Conscience laundering, I think someone once called it. Yeah. Um, now, we asked you to bring a few things to talk to us about, Sebastian, as we always do on the Penguin podcast. And the first one of your objects is a river. Yeah, this is, as people who have read my books will know, I'm, I've spent a lot of time in France, and it's uh, one of the greatest things about being English, I think, uh, and there are lots of good things, and some rather disappointing at the moment, but lots of good things. But one of the best is being only 20 miles away from France. So you just take a boat or a train, and you're in a sort of completely different world. It's like Alice Through the Looking Glass. People's assumptions about life, the way they live, are completely different. They are, but it's a very civilized country, but in an utterly different way from ours. And I've always loved it and found it intriguing. Sometimes it's annoying, but largely it's enormously good fun. Beautiful, beautiful country too. Once when my wife and I had recently married and she was pregnant with our first child, we stayed in a little gîte in the lot, a sort of pretty run-down little barn place actually. 
And one day we went off and to a picnic and I said, if we just go downhill, I'm sure there's a river here. So we drove our car as far as we could and then we walked. And sure enough, eventually we found this absolutely beautiful place with a river and a bank and dappled shade and you could paddle in the river. And it was like something out of a film set. Of course, I expected that we'd be shooed away at any minute by an angry farmer, but amazingly, we weren't. Stupidly, I didn't take any photographs. I didn't have a camera. But about, I would say, eight or nine years later, we were on holiday somewhere nearby. And I said to my wife, let's go and see if we can find this enchanted space. And by this time, we had three children. And I remembered to take a camera. And we found it. And I took photographs of them standing. It's like something out of a a rather unbelievably um, cheesy film that they stand there with the sunlight pouring down on them, fishing and splashing and paddling. And we were drinking wine on the bank and eating camembert sandwiches or whatever it was. So it was a place that I felt very happy. And I felt, you know, life is so seldom works out exactly how you would like it to. And this was just an absolutely perfect day. And I'd like my some of my ashes to be scattered on the spot, though I'm pretty sure my wife will never be able to find it. <laughs> um, second object. Yes, something that changed me, I think this comes under the heading of. And I picked the writing of George Orwell, which I discovered when I was about 14, I suppose, when I first began to read a lot. I was up to that point rather a conventional little boy and quite fierce, uh, very shy, but fierce. I knew what right was and I knew what wrong was and an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and so on. And then I read an essay by Orwell called A Hanging, which was about when he was in Burma as a sort of colonial policeman and some poor man was being escorted to the scaffold. I mean, there was no question, but this man was guilty of whatever he'd been charged of. But as he watched him walk to the scaffold to be hanged, Orwell sees him step aside to avoid a puddle. And at that moment, he starts to think that this man isn't actually dying. Uh, He's alive. All his organs are working. His skin is renewing itself. His nails are still growing and would be even as he's falling through the air through the drop on the scaffold. He says, it's strange, but until that moment, I had never understood what it means to kill a healthy, conscious, living man. And this suddenly made me realize that there were different ways of looking at the world. It wasn't simple. And it set my mind really at a sort of liberal slant to the world forever and ever afterwards. And I mean, Orwell also, of course, is the most tremendously clear, lucid and persuasive writer. So logical, sort of carries you with him in his arguments. And he's so generous in his judgment. He's on the side of the poor. He's on the side of the downtrodden. He's on the side of the man who's about to be hanged. But he also detested totalitarianism in any shape. So his, as you might say, left-wing sympathies would stop when a state adopted them to the extent that it became coercive. Gosh, that was a rather pompous sentence, wasn't it? But anyway, Orwell was also very entertaining, and I learned a lot. Now, for someone who is such a Francophile, your third object is of an entirely different language. Yes, Italian for beginners. That sat in my bathroom for a long time, and I would look at it in the bath and repeat to myself, buongiorno, come sta? Molto bene, grazie. And I could do the accent, but the grammar of Italian is harder than you think. And I can speak French, 
and I have quite a good accent for an English speaker. And the secret to that is that you you just imitate a Frenchman. I mean, we can all do a, a rather second-rate imitation of a Scotsman or an Irishman or an Australian, which I think I've already done. So when you come to speak French, all you do is you you figure out what you're going to say. Bonjour. Est-ce que je pourrais emprunter le petit comment ça s'appelle le petit chose la petite chose de But you you just do like a a Rory Bremner ir- imitating a Frenchman. And that's how you have a get a French accent. It's, there's no big secret to it. And I'd done it French at school, so I'd sort of got the basic grammar and so on. But I, I thought, I'm not really very good at languages. I'm not naturally good at them. But my wife speaks fluent Italian, um, having studied at university and having lived there for a bit. And I thought it would be good to learn a second language. But I'm afraid it's sort of stayed forever beyond me. And although I can order in a restaurant, and though I, having learned Latin at school and having learned French, I can sort of vaguely understand a, a newspaper article because so many of the words are the same, really. Being able to speak has eluded me, and I'm too lazy to learn all the verb constructions. So I chose that object as a sort of salutary slap over the wrist for all the failures of hard work that have been very, very much part of my life. When you're in France, is your impression good enough that people sometimes are surprised that you are in fact English? They assume from the way I speak that I am sort of close to bilingual, which is a disaster because, of course, then they start speaking at a million miles an hour. And the... <laughs> it's one thing to be able to you know, do a plausible imitation of a French, but quite another thing to uh, understand a voluble Parisian at a thousand miles an hour, venting his wrath and indignation about some something that's gone wrong. And they Parisians are permanently indignant. Oh, mais dis donc, parce que j'ai jamais vu que dans ma vie, j'ai jamais entendu une chose. And after a bit, you know, your brain just can't really take in. And you, I have to say, il faut parler un peu plus doucement, s'il vous plaît, doucement. doucement. Yes. Uh, yeah. I don't think I've ever actually been mistaken for a French person, well, not for very long. I mean, the formation of the words of the larynx and the, you know, it's really hard to sound. Though I have a French goddaughter whose mother is English, father French, and watching her grow up when she was beginning to learn to speak at about two years old, from the mouth of this baby came this extraordinary guttural and perfectly and beautifully formed sound and I looked at her mother English and she looked at me and said it's just not natural I mean how can this be <laughs> but um, it's uh, it's all to do with neural pathways in the brain and what you've heard and how that feeds back into how you shape sounds but for me the problem understanding French is almost all the vowel sounds sound, sound the same they're all variations of on and there are about 10 different ways you can spell the on sound so it's very hard to pick out. And of course, in any given word, French people only pronounce about half the letters and most of them they just subsume into on. So it's it's tough. Next object, Sebastian, is a song by Stevie Wonder. Tell us why this particular song by this particular artist. Well, I was asked to think of something that, a piece of music that moves you. And I, I thought of lots of pretentious bits of classical music and opera and so on, but... The truth is I'm not a particularly musical person. I mean, I like it, but I am not musically educated and I find a lot of classical music 
quite sort of algorithmic and uh, mathematical. Bach, Mozart, for instance, I'm not qualified to doubt their genius, which I would never do, but it doesn't really speak to me very much. But since the age of about seven or eight, like most kids, I, I mean, I grew up with the Beatles and Tamla Motown and Phil Spector's Wall of Sound. And, you know, I've always loved pop music. And I remember being on holiday in the Alps, a skiing holiday, and it was very cold. And I was about to get on a ski lift with my brother. And the guy who ran the ski lift had a little hut with a sort of brazier outside where he tried to keep warm. And he had a tinny transistor radio, which he was playing. And it began to play this song, Overjoyed by Stevie Wonder. And I knew Stevie Wonder's records, obviously, again, you know, grown up with Tamla and I'd bought Talking Book and Inner Visions and so on. But when I heard the song, I just thought, this is prodigious. I mean, there is more melody in this one song than there is in a whole album of most people. It's got about four different tunes and it's just going on and on. And my brother and I both stopped in the icy cold and we let other people go past us because we simply couldn't believe the gorgeousness of this melody. And I saw him perform it, actually, in Battersea Park about 10 years ago. And it was, he plays his own stuff very well, surprisingly. <laughs> he doesn't mess it about too much. He's not like Dylan, where you're three minutes in before you recognize what the song is. And seeing Stevie Wonder live, you're very moved by the songs, by the melody, the sadness, the sweetness, the joy, superstition, and Sir Duke, and all the upbeat ones as well. But you're also very moved that there is someone alive who is this talented, especially considering his very considerable disadvantages. Watching him live is trebly thrilling. And finally, for your objects, Sebastian, you've just talked about skiing. Um, I presume tennis is another one of your sporting pursuits, is it? I played a lot of sport, mostly cricket, but I had to give up cricket a couple of years ago because I could no longer see the ball properly. And football, I played a lot, and you know, pretty much Sunday park stuff, you know, but vigorous. And tennis, I still play. I belong to a club nearby. And the tennis racket, which is the object I've picked, which reminds me of home because the club is nearby. And it's been a great, a very enjoyable part of my life. I've played since I was about 10, I suppose, off and on. I'm never, never particularly well because I was always too um, engaged in other sports. But I began to play more seriously about um, 15, 20 years ago. Played in various fairly friendly league competitions in London. Doubles, which is a much better game than singles because you don't have to be so fit. Singles can be quite boring in tennis. I think men's singles in particular, because it's so risk-free. It's it's turned into a kind of endurance sport, like squash used to be. So I don't really think Djokovic is the greatest tennis player ever, but I think he's the fittest ever. He'll never be as good as Federer. He can win another 40 titles for all I care. He'll he'll never change the way the game is played or exemplify the beauty of the game in the way that Federer did. We tend to play on Sunday evening. I have some friends and we have a regular four followed by quite nice dinner. The club has quite nice food. And then pottering back in time for match of the day too with the tennis racket in my hand. It reminds me of how nice home life can be. How did you become a West Ham fan, Sebastian, of all the teams? Well, I was born there, wouldn't I? 
<laughs> it's a very good question. <laughs> well, that, the old Atmos and Pearson, uh, you know, my nan wouldn't have let me in if I hadn't been. Uh, no, it was um, by chance, really. Again, it's, it puts up peer pressure, really, at, at school. But being a disagreeable little boy, I didn't want to follow the size that the other kids supported, which was largely in those days Spurs and Manchester United. And this was in, believe it or not, 1964. And it was the semi-final of the FA Cup. And there was this team called West Ham, and I didn't really know where West Ham was. I thought it might be in Devon, somewhere in the West Country. But I really liked the colour of their shirts, the, the claret and blue. And anyway, they won the semi-final, and they won the final. And I got to know the team, and there was this guy called Bobby Moore, who played in the middle of the back. And I went to see them in London. I hadn't really been to London before, and I went to see them at Upton Park. And then I went to see them at, at Arsenal. And this guy Moore was just playing a different game from other people. He wasn't that quick and he wasn't that big, but his anticipation was such and his timing was such that he was two yards ahead of everyone else, despite being a yard slower. And there was a young man called Trevor Brooking who'd just broken into the team, a bit slow and a bit prone to fall over. But he looked, I thought he looked handy. And of course, there was a guy called Jeff Hurst who, and Martin Peters. So purely by chance, I had chosen a team that was great fun to follow. Though, boy, did we have to wait a long time for any other success. Well, um, I will now reveal to you I'm a Tottenham fan, so you can't put the phone down because we've already really covered most of our conversation. So even if you did, it wouldn't be that much of a problem. Uh, Tottenham's fine by me. Um Good side, doing very well this year. They've always played good attacking football. No problem with Tottenham or Chelsea, actually. My son's a great Chelsea fan. I remember talking to a, an old guy, an Arsenal supporter, and I say, you know, how did you choose? He said, well, I live in North London. And I said, yeah, but between Arsenal and Tottenham, he said, well, in my day, we supported both. And we would go, we'd always have a home game. And you were an Arsenal and a Tottenham supporter. This was, I suppose, a long time, you know, the 1940s probably. So it wasn't sort of tribal. It was just That's right. my this guy lived between two great local teams and he had a home game every Saturday. Wonderful. <laughs> Sebastian, it's always a pleasure to speak to you. So thank you so much. It's been wonderful speaking to you today. Thanks, Neil. It was really good fun. I'll see you in call. Yes. And thank you for listening wherever you are. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. And why not leave us a review too and help us get the word out. And finally, if you want to find out more about this podcast or Sebastian's wonderful new book, The Seventh Son, head over to penguin.co.uk slash podcasts where you'll find cultural conversations with authors from Margaret Atwood to Benjamin Zephaniah. Dip in, see what you find. I'm Nihal Arthanaika. I'll see you next time.